Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Mark Daguerre continues the series of messages on the miracles of Jesus, today looking at the greatest miracle of all. And now, here's Mark. Good morning, everyone. So it's the anniversary of Resurrection Sunday. The day that Jesus rose from death because death could not hold him. The day that the door to immortality was opened. And a stone was rolled away. It wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. You know why? It's to let us in, right? That's right. And the very cross that was used to crucify the Savior now had been put to... was used to put the enemy to shame. So let's pray before we start. Father, again, we want to thank you as we uh, celebrate that day, Lord, where you rose from the grave, defeating death once and for all. Lord, that we can look forward to that day when we can spend eternity with you in heaven. Amen. So please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to be reading from chapter 28. You know, when I was growing up, um, Easter was this bleak affair. You know, where year after year, Jesus was dying and dead. You know, I born at Christmas, dead by Easter. Everyone I knew, they went through the same uh, motions during these religious observations. On the one hand, the build-up to Christmas was this, was this really uplifting and exciting time. While the build-up to Easter was this somber and quite discouraging thing. It was a sad event that would take place year after year after year. And it wasn't until God actually opened my eyes to the truth that I was able to comprehend what it means for Jesus dying on the cross for my sin. That's when I understood that God is just. He's perfect. And he cannot turn a blind eye to sin. So there had to be a penalty that was levied against me. No one else was able to pay for that sin because everyone else was just as guilty as I was. You know, a thief can't be a substitute for another thief because he's due for punishment as well. He has to pay for his own sin. So if someone wanted to take my place, they had to be sinless in thought, in word, and in deed. And since everyone was born of man and is corrupt, this person would have to be born in some miraculous way. Because otherwise they would have been tainted by sin from birth. And then on top of that, they would have to be willing to take my place. And Jesus, taking my place, was the only possible and necessary transaction that God the Father would accept as a substitution to pay for my own sin debt. A payment that was due with my debt, but yet Jesus willingly paid it on my behalf. So you can imagine, Easter became very different to me. Because once I partook of this transaction by faith in Christ, Easter was no longer this bleak and somber holiday. 
It actually became a more joyful time than Christmas for me. And there's people that actually celebrate it like it's a huge thing compared to Christmas. You know, many believe that in John chapter 19 and verse 30, that it contains the most powerful sentence ever spoken in this world. It's when Jesus proclaims, it is finished. And we know that this statement refers to the payment that Jesus made by shedding his blood on the cross. And we know that he's resurrected. We all know that today, right? He's resurrected. That's pretty quiet. We all know, yes? At least nod your head. Okay, good, good. But to those disciples that were standing there at the time when Jesus made this statement, it would have been utterly devastating. To think that this movement that was going to change the world had come to this abrupt and violent end. And the Messiah that was supposed to lead this movement was now dead. So the words, it is finished, were a dreadful thing to hear. Yet those same words, three days later, carried something with them that was very different. They carried new life and unspeakable joy. The same words. So from that point on, I can't imagine that these disciples wouldn't Uh, would not be appreciating those words in a whole other level. Because the context had now changed. Now it brought joy to all that would put their faith in Jesus. And it was also going to bring hope to those that were seeking the truth. And since Jesus died once, he doesn't die every year. He only died once. Okay? It shouldn't be a somber thing. This should be a joyful thing. Because we know that he's alive and well. You know, he is physically in heaven right now. Physical body. In heaven right now. Sitting at the right hand of the Father. So it should be a celebration beyond that of Christmas. But when we're thinking through the implications of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are some key things that uh, we need to consider in order to come to the point of understanding why there's so much joy behind that statement It is finished. Otherwise, the death of an innocent man wouldn't make much sense. And it would be altogether depressing. So when we look at the story of redemption in this, uh, in a logical and linear way, it becomes much easier for us to move to a place of joy, which is where we ought to be. The thing is, as people, we have this tendency to overcomplicate things. And then we like to make them harder than they really need to be. And who knows us better than God himself, right? Which is why, with even as much depth and as many layers as there are involved in him putting together everything in order to have us have a way for salvation, he's also made the steps to understanding the gospel quite simple. It's about the death, burial, and resurrection. It began... With a perfect world, a perfect creation, sinless, and one simple rule to keep the heart of man in check. He gives them the knowledge of consequence for disobedience, which should have kept man away from sin. But man fails, and with that, sin enters into the world. God, in his mercy, 
makes a way so that man does not have to pay the penalty by shedding his own blood. So God sheds the blood of an innocent animal in order to give man a temporary covering for sin. And with that, God gives them the promise of a savior, a person that would once and for all cleanse man from that penalty of sin. And from then on, generation after generation after generation, they are waiting for this promised Messiah that would actually come and take away the world, uh, the sin of the world. So that, other, so that everyone could be made clean and have a right relationship with God. Generations were looking for this. And now the Messiah had come. And they were waiting for that, the, the curse of sin and death to be gone so that they can enjoy everlasting life with God the Father like in the days of Adam in the Garden of Eden. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and become as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly, and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. So one of the primary reasons that people have difficulty with the wrath of God is because they fail to understand the justice of God. Remember, God is a just judge. The Bible says the soul that sins will surely die and that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Our problem is that we just don't realize how sinful we truly are. You know, we think we're, ah, we're not that bad. We always compare ourselves to someone else that's much worse than we are. Now imagine if I were to commit just one sin per day, which would be a feat impossible unless I was sleeping, because we do multiple sins a day, okay? But based on that, one sin per day, after 20 years, I'd have well over a thousand charges. And as I look around the room, we'd have a lot of rap sheets around here too, right? So sin, day after day, sin after sin, it just builds up. Yet one sin is enough to condemn let alone a thousand upon a thousand sins. No just judge would ever be willing to overlook such recklessness. And if a judge didn't give me what I deserved, then that judge would be corrupt. That judge wouldn't be fit to be a judge. Which is why our understanding of God's justice is very important. A quote I heard sums it up much better than I ever could. And it goes... Justice is the vehicle that delivers the wrath of God. God doesn't simply forgive someone for the sins they commit because justice requires that sin, no matter how small we may think it is, will be punished. And not according to our standards, but according to the standard that God himself has laid out on this, in the scriptures. Justice means that we get exactly what we deserve. Wonderful quote. But no matter how wonderful a quote is, it won't amount to much if we aren't seeking the truth. 
Thankfully, the Spirit of God is the one that draws us and gives us the desire for the truth. And as we continue to seek the, the, the Lord of the Bible, uh, the one that draws us and he gives us this desire, uh, we'll get this healthy fear of the Lord. A fear that will cause us to seek out the truth and to find him. And for the majority of people, the Bible says there's no fear of God before their eyes. But what is meant by fear? See, I, we hear the word fear and we always think there's a negative aspect to fear. But simply put, fear comes when someone or something has power over you. You know, it could be good fear. It could be bad fear. It's like what happened a few weeks ago in our home. I'm in the basement. And all of a sudden, I can hear Micah upstairs. And it sounds like he's tripping over his feet and he's running around the house and banging in the walls. And I can hear him elevating his voice and he's talking with his high-pitched voice. And I knew it wasn't something major because Sarah wasn't phased by what was going on. Come to find out that Micah was sitting on a chair. And this creepy crawly spider decided to climb up on his arm. Which in turn caused him to do the most hilarious heebie-jeebie dance for about ten minutes. Okay? And as funny as it was to me, it seemed like life and death to him. Because he had this close and personal meeting with this spider. And it caused him to have this, this immediate reaction. And he wanted to just protect himself while he was running around the house and trying to shake it off. And obviously the spider was way more scared of him and he just took off. You know, fears can be healthy. Like when you have the fear of a deadly spider, or in this case, not so deadly spider. Or the fear of standing too close to the edge of a cliff. I remember some years ago we went to the Grand Canyon. And when we visited that place, man, I had difficulty walking even 20 feet from this big heavy-duty uh, stone wall. Because it just flew over the edge. It really bothered me. I had this good fear. But then you look in the distance and you see these teenagers with their feet dangling over the cliff. You know, that's the, the fear I had is the kind of fear that prevents you from hurting yourself. It's a self-preservation fear. The kind of fear they had was like they were afraid of, uh, of people calling them chicken so they would get closer to the edge. That's a silly kind of fear. That's the kind of fear that will cause you problems. You know, the Bible says the fear of man brings a snare. Because when we're more afraid of people calling us names like chicken or whatever the case may be or what they may think of us than falling off a cliff, that kind of fear causes us to make horrible decisions. It's been well said, we fear man so much because we fear God so little. The Bible says God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You know, an irrational fear when you're afraid of everything and anything for no logical reason, that's not a sound mind. And then there's a holy fear. So we have good fear, we have bad fear, then we have a holy fear, the fear of the Lord. People get confused and think, I'm not supposed to be afraid of God if I'm a follower of God. It's a different kind of fear, kind of like love. You know, there's different kinds of love, there's different kinds of fear. This is more of a reverence. It's not about terror and dread. It's about reverence in the God that measures the universe with the span of his hand. 
That's a proper kind of fear. The Bible says that by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. It says that the fear of the Lord is the uh, yeah the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's a fear that causes people to desire salvation. That's the kind of fear that causes someone to run away from death and sin towards Jesus, the giver of life. And the way to receive a healthy dose of fear, of good fear, is to look at the Ten Commandments in the right way, in their proper context, and realize that they're not there to show us how to live a good life. But to re- they reveal to us just how sinful we truly are. That we aren't good enough to deserve eternal life in heaven. Because we've actually broken every law there is. And this will provide a person with a good fear. And that good fear will cause them to not want to move from this life to the next unless they make things right with God. Because you see, the law without consequences, it's only good advice. But once we know that there are actual ramifications when we break the law, and we then have to take this opportunity to come to Jesus and ask him to save us. But without consequences, there's no desire to move in the right direction. The Bible says that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. Verse 8. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy. This was a good and holy fear. And did run to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Remember now that the disciples are in hiding. I mean, since this happened, they've been in hiding because they are terrified. They are afraid of the government and the Jewish leaders because they know that their association with Jesus now has possibly made a way for them to have a death warrant upon them. And yet... You see that they they witnessed what happened. They were there. They saw what happened to Jesus, how he was brought in, and he was brought in on these trumped-up charges. And now these Jewish leaders, these very people that should have been so excited to be alive during a time when this Messiah, this momentous event, when the Messiah himself that was prophesied about was going to be arriving, they should have been stoked about this. But they ended up being filled with jealousy and hate. And they decided to dedicate their time and their resources to make sure that the prophesied Redeemer would not make it out alive. How twisted is that? That's why the disciples are hiding. And that's why they're afraid. They knew that they would meet the same fate as Jesus. Imagine if next week... Uh, the authorities were at the front door of the church building here. And they were ready to round up anyone that came in. And whoever comes is guaranteed to get scourged, thrown in prison. I don't think we'd be lining up to come in here. Because we'd be afraid, and rightly so. We'd be fr- making frantic phone calls to people. Avoid the place. Don't go there. They're going to be taking us in. But what would happen if Jesus actually visited us at home the morning before we were to meet here? May I suggest we would deal with it in an entirely different way? 
We'd be calling everybody. Be on, be on social media. Make sure you get there. Jesus is going to be there. I don't care if they're trying to stop you at the door. Plow through them. Get in there. So what changes? Well, the fear of man, which is a bad kind of fear, okay, it went from up here to way down there. And then the fear of God, which is a wonderful, good kind of fear, it goes from down here to way up there. So the tides turn. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? And this is what happens here to the ladies in verse 10. They come face to face with the resurrected Jesus. Just a few days ago, they saw this man get whipped, get torn apart and crucified. And now he's alive and well. They thought they knew who Jesus was, but now they realize he is God incarnate. The same reverential fear that Moses had when he met God on the mountain, these ladies now had on themselves as well. This was holy fear. And this fear is combined with indescribable joy. He puts them together. So you can't mistake it. It's not a horrible fear. It's a good fear. Which tells us that it's not the same kind of fear of a person having when they're running away from God. And when you're in a right relationship with God, there's no need to worry. There's no need to fear what a person can do to you. So when we have a tendency to worry or we have a ten- tendency to be overly concerned with uh, you know, things that are going on, what people may do or say, uh, may I suggest that we just need to get closer to God. Spending time with Him. Spending time with Him as we study His Word. But also submitting to His Word and what it's, obeying what it says. And as we soak ourselves in the Word and in prayer, the concerns of this world, they just fade away. Then we read of the disciples later on in the book of Acts how they go out and they boldly proclaim Jesus. The same disciples that are terrified and hiding. And who are they preaching to? The people they were hiding from. They actually go to them and they're preaching Jesus to them. And it becomes quite evident that their perspective has changed. The disciples are told to keep quiet or else they would suffer the consequences. And Peter just tells them straight up, you know what? We're supposed to obey God rather than man. The fear was gone. The fear of man, that bad fear, gone. And he was able to, pro, uh, to, to boldly say that because he had come face to face with the living God. And no mere man could now even frighten him, even with the consequences of death. He could care less. Because if Jesus is alive, that means he gets to live forever in heaven with him. So he was looking forward to that day that he would actually die. Verse 11. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priest all things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and they did as they were taught 
And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. You know, I can only imagine what the atmosphere would have been like in that place. Cut the tension with a knife. When these military guards arrive and declare what had happened, I can't imagine what was going through these people's minds. But as one of those guards, personally, I would have panicked and I would have jetted out of there because I know the consequence is I'm going to lose my head for not doing my job properly. But yet, instead of doing that, they go to the chief priests and then they tell them what happened. Because they were terrified by the fact that someone that was dead for three days rose from the grave. And then all of a sudden, the celestial being comes down from heaven and tosses a boulder like it was nothing. The same being that brought joy to the ladies brought absolute terror to these people. The difference between the two groups is where they stood on the only things that really matter in the end. Where did they stand on truth, righteousness, and Jesus Christ? Same thing can be said for us. Where do we stand on truth, righteousness, and Jesus Christ? Apparently, they weren't interested in the truth or righteousness. Because as you read, you see what happens. Because instead of contemplating what had just happened and submitting to Christ, they choose corruption through power and control. And God gave them exactly what they wanted. He gave them life without Christ which leads to an eternity in hell. The Bible says, He that believeth not, uh, sorry, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. These are the same religious people that in the previous chapter had said, hey, we are willing to believe. They actually said that. In verse 42, and I quote, If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. See, when somebody keeps giving you a reason as to why they're not believing, but they just need another reason to believe, they're not seeking the truth. They're not willing to believe. That's why I don't debate with people. If you want to reason, let's reason. If you want to debate, I'm not going to waste my breath. Because you're not willing to know the truth. And you know, Abraham understood the profound truth of simple faith. He said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, meaning the scriptures, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So these religious leaders did not only choose to not believe, but now they were going out of their way to keep their power and their influence over the people. They didn't want anyone else to believe either. Because that means that there was going to be a shift in control. And they were not willing to hand over something that they had worked so long and so hard at attaining. They weren't about to take what they had worked so hard for and just hand it over to this Messiah. As the saying goes, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. 
And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus mentions two places here, heaven and earth. I like simple math, too. I can count that high. You know, it's easy for us to comprehend earth because we live here. You know, we interact with people. Uh, we can touch things, notice things, see everything's real. The problem with, with uh, earth is that this planet and its inhabitants are still under the curse of sin. So we have to put up with a world that is against God. You know, uh, we, we put up with a world that despises Jesus and people that are progressively anti-Christian, that are going out of their way to persecute fellow believers simply because they name the name of Christ. You know, every Sunday we talk about the persecuted church. It's difficult for us to comprehend at what level they're being persecuted at. Because here we get teased for being a Christian. Over there they get thrown in prison. And they make these weird laws, like we saw today, weird laws just to be able to get somebody and throw them away for a while. But the Christians back then dealt with persecution as well. See, we, when we read the gospel, sometimes we, we, we forget that until we get to this part of the scripture where he's being crucified. Before that, we think everything's hunky-dory. But there was always persecution. In addition to that, we have to contend with ourselves. It's bad enough we got to deal with the things of the world. Now we have to deal with ourselves. Deal with things like doubt, spiritual weakness, all kinds of sin that this cursed flesh is prone to wander in. And it's only by the grace of God that we can even begin to be more like Him. And that should be our desire, to be like Him. Something good about having to deal with all of these pains, though, is that it causes us to long for the day where we'll get to be with Jesus forever in heaven. Paul talks about that. He longed for the day. I can't even begin to comprehend what that's going to be like in heaven. You know, we have the scriptures so we could read the descriptions that are in there. Find out a place, uh, sorry, we find out that heaven isn't a place where people are floating in clouds playing little harps. Thankfully. Instead, we find out that it's a physical place. A physical city. Real homes. A place where there's no sin. And personally, I think if there's no sin, that means we don't have to shovel snow. So heaven is a place where we don't have to shovel snow. A place of perpetual daytime. Best of all, Jesus is there. And it's Jesus' perfect kingdom. The Bible says that if you've repented, that heaven is your home and that Jesus has prepared a place for you. What a, what a thought that, no, this is just a temporary place. My real home is not even here. It's been well said that to the non-believer, earth is the closest thing that they'll ever see to heaven. But to the believer, earth is is the closest thing that we'll ever see to hell. Let that sink in for a while. Verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, 
teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So the marching orders are very clear. Go make disciples. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And we need to make sure that we have that same desire. We need to do a check. Do I have the same desire that God has? And I mean, how can we not be excited about our faith? Right? Christianity is the only true story where the hero dies for the villain. Hollywood could have never written that one up. And it's the only faith where the followers... Remember the picture at the beginning with the tomb? This is the only faith where the followers will go to the founder's tomb to see that he's not there. What an amazing Savior. But if you've never had a holy fear through an encounter with the living God of the Bible, might I suggest that you make that your priority? Because the Bible says life is like a vapor. It's here today, then it's gone. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the debt that, Lord, we could not pay. Lord, you did not uh, owe, but we owed. And And, Lord, you paid for that debt, and, Lord, we thank you for that. Our prayer is that the story of your resurrection, Lord, would... Uh, renew in us a holy fear. And as we spend time with you in your scripture, Lord, we pray that you would embolden us and we praise you, Lord, for the opportunity that you have given us here to meet together. And we pray that we would be able to glorify you through the uh, things that we do, whether at work, whether at home, or through anything, Lord. We just praise you and we want to glorify you that ultimately people will be drawn to you and that, um, Lord, you uh, would be glorified through their salvation. Amen. Thank you, Mark. That was very, very appropriate and brought us to that place where we see the tomb empty and we see what Jesus is and does for us and uh, look forward to being with him. And we uh, look forward to journeying with him here as the disciples began on that journey. We're going to sing Death Was Arrested. When I first heard this song a few years ago, I was drawn to it. That's interesting. You know, like, you know, you think, who's being arrested here? You're like, somebody's being taken away on charges. Well, death has been taken away on charges and (laughs) put away. But but it also means it was stopped, right? Death was arrested. This is the end of death. And that's what we're celebrating this morning. So as those who follow Jesus, then we can sing death was arrested. So let's stand and do that together as we end our time. With those thoughts, we'll say amen and uh, happy Easter, everyone. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.